0: Welcome to Case in Point, produced by the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School. My name is Matt Marin, and I'm the Multimedia Coordinator from the Law School's Communications Department. Today, my guests are Sarah Paoletti, who is a Practice Professor of Law and the Director of the Transnational Legal Clinic at the University of Pennsylvania Carey Law School's Giddes Center for Clinical Legal Studies. Also with us today is Asade Shashahani who is the Legal and Advocacy Director at Project South, which is a southern-based leadership development organization that creates spaces for movement building. Today we're discussing the current state of ICE facilities amidst the ongoing calls for abolition as accusations of forced sterilizations and other human rights violations are made public. Thank you so much for being here uh, this evening. Uh, Could you briefly discuss what's been happening at the Irwin County Detention Center? What about ICE facilities across the country?
1: Sure. Thank you very much for having us. So um, we at Project South have been documenting conditions at Irwin for a long time. Uh, In 2017, um, along with the Penn State Center for Immigrants' Rights Clinic, we put out a report documenting the human rights uh, violations at this facility, uh, ranging from lack of access to clean water to lack of um, access to prenatal care uh, for pregnant women, um, to lack of access to reproductive rights uh, for women generally. Um, you know, One issue that has been a concern for a long time, women have not, access, uh, have not had access to clean underwear um, which uh, means that they've had to wear you know, wet and often very dirty underwear um, for a long time. And that has led to a range of rashes and infections um, that they've had to deal with. Um, and um, so we put out the report in 2017, um, nothing happened in terms of you know, improving the conditions Uh, In the spring, um, a group of women got together and uh, put out a video on the conditions at the facility and specifically their fears of catching COVID. Uh, Instead of addressing their concerns, the facility actually uh, uh, went ahead and subjected them to retaliation. So the facility put them in solitary confinement, which led to grave emotional damage for them. Um, and, um, and you know, based on what we're hearing from the women, and then um, we also uh, are now representing Ms. Wooten, the courageous whistleblower, uh, we um, put out a complaint uh, in September, talking about um, the fact that uh, immigrants at the facility were not being tested for COVID, despite asking repeatedly, um, and, um, There were other issues related to lack of um, healthcare and also really grave concerns about uh, violence against women's bodies. Um, So the latest report um, that came out a Los Angeles Times article documented cases of uh, 17 women um, who faced medical abuse at Irving and in some cases forced sterilizations. And we know that there are more cases of women out there who have to live uh, with this long lasting damage to their bodies and spirits. Um, And um, this is is the case at Irvine. Of course, conditions at facilities nationwide are also harrowing. Uh, Just at another uh, facility in Georgia, the Stewart Detention Center, there have been seven deaths since uh, May of 2017, two of them by suicide and three of them during the pandemic. Um, So ICE continued to keep two elderly people and one younger person who had a pre-existing condition, namely diabetes, in detention. Um, Which raises the question as to why, you know, when when it's um, so obvious the measures that they could have taken to save these people's lives. Uh, and that—that's just, um, you know, that's just really the tip of the iceberg. Um, and um, you know, we really need to shut these places down. Is what is what we're pushing for at Project South, along with partners on the ground.
2: I'll just add and and reiterate, uh, azadeh's thanks for hosting this. Um, you know, this is part of a, a longstanding history of abuses in immigration detention. Um, And so it's important just as by way of context to point out that people who have committed or who are deemed to have committed civil violations of our immigration law um, or are otherwise in violation of our immigration law are subject to detention. Uh, And detention, right, is sort of a, a euphemistic way of saying that we put these people, we put immigrants in jail, Uh, And we jail them there for a long period of time until they can convince an immigration judge to release them or until they are ultimately deported. Uh, And the the international law is pretty clear um, that detention should never be used for a civil matter and should not be used in the context of civil immigration um, unless it's as a matter of last resort. Because of the host of due process violations that arise, lack of access to counsel, and the long standing histories of abuse that we've seen out of Irwin, out of Stewart, but in, in immigrant detention centers across the country. And those have only been exacerbated by the, by the recent COVID pandemic and, and the access to medical care uh, and hygienic facilities that are being denied to people uh, in detention.
0: What's the average amount of time that someone could spend in one of these detention centers?
2: Oh, that's such a good question. You know, when the issue of prolonged detention was first litigated, uh, all the way up to, well, not first litigated, but when it was litigated to the Supreme Court, we had a situation where the uh, Justice Department misrepresented the facts um, and indicated that it was for a much shorter period of time than it was actually. Uh, And when they came back to the Supreme Court under Jennings, they had to correct the record and admit. That in their earlier in the earlier litigation, they had the timing, uh, the dates, and duration of detention um, inaccurate. We have been trying um, through work at the Inter American Commission, through a series of hearings and working meetings at the Inter American Commission on Human Rights, since the Obama administration, to get disaggregated data by. Either by region or by facility as to who is in detention and how long people are being detained. Uh, and the government has not been forthcoming with that information. Um, but it is not uncommon. I have a client now who's been in detention for 30 months. Um, and so you can be in detention for, you know, a short period of time, but there are many people. Who linger in detention for for upwards of two to three years?
0: Sorry, given that the detention center is privately operated, what kind of public oversight is had over the institution? Why, even after allegations of human rights abuses, are contracts being expanded with companies such as LaSalle Corrections?
2: That last question is also, Matt. You're asking all of the all of the questions that we have been asking. Um, as advocates uh, representing individuals in detention. Why is this still happening? Um, We have a case, I'll just say, we have a case uh, before the Inter-American Commission right now, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights about abuses that took place in detention in uh, 2007, 2008 uh, against unaccompanied minors, physical and sexual abuse against unaccompanied minors detained in Texas at a facility in Texas. That facility subsequently was closed um, at the Nixon facility and and those children uh, and others were transferred into other facilities, but it doesn't mean that the operators of those facilities are no longer in operation. And LaSalle, which is the, the corporation that owns and operates, operates Irwin, has a long history of abuse, of recorded abuse and and documented medical neglect. And even the Department of Homeland Security's Office of Inspector General has noted the abuses that take place in these facilities. And what you see is, um, again, under the Obama administration, we saw a move to deprivatize the prison system uh, in the context of the criminal justice system. And there was a push at that point to have that happen in the immigration arena as well. And when Trump took office, that all went out the window, and the stocks for these private corporations went up. And we've seen an expansion of their use and of the contracting. Um, you know, the government is on notice. They cannot make any argument that they do not know that these abuses are taking place, because as as Azadeh pointed out. Um, Since 2017 and even earlier, when we did our, when the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights issued its first report on detention in the United States in 2011, and even before that, right, there have been ongoing documented cases of abuses. We do have detention standards, um, which, as I noted, the earlier uh, Homeland Security Office of Inspector General report noted were not even being followed um, so these private corporations are not even upholding the minimal standards that are in place um, for detention conditions. And, and so how it is that they continue to get these contracts uh, and, and why it is that they continue to get these contracts and, and why is there such a lack of accountability um, is, it has been our ongoing uh, question and, and underlies our ongoing call for action.
1: You know, I think the main issue is the profit motive here. And that's a really dangerous motive to have. So, you know, we're talking, we've been talking about abuses at Irving. Another facility that we are closely documenting um, and trying to shut down the Stewart Detention Center is run by a private prison corporation that used to be called uh, Corrections Corporation of America. Because of the horrible record that CCA had, um, they changed their name probably per the advice of their public relations people to Core Civic. Um, Of course, you know, that did not change anything for those of us very familiar with their history. And Core Civic, um, which operates the Stewart Detention Center, uh, runs a forced labor program at Stewart and we're currently co-counsel in a class action lawsuit um, against core civic for the forced labor program. And what that means is that um, the private prison corporation relies on the forced labor of immigrants inside the facility for, um, you know, doing the chores inside the kitchen, uh, cleaning the bathrooms, and then paying them in return between um, one to $4 a day. So subminimum wages. Um, and sometimes they don't get paid at all. So one of our clients in the class action lawsuit, Shoaib Ahmed, he said that, you know, after not having been paid for several days, he said no work tomorrow. And then for that, they placed him in solitary confinement for several days, which again, um, caused him grave emotional damage, uh, which he has to live with now that um, he has been deported. Um, And that's the case for many, many, many other immigrants. If they refuse to participate in this work program, um, they are sent to solitary or they're deprived of basic life necessities. Um, And you know, you should consider that um, the way these contracts happen a lot of times is that these um, rich uh, private prison corporations go to these very poor counties like Stewart County, one of the poorest counties in Georgia, uh, with this proposal in hand, that you know, if you all allow us to come to this county and operate this prison or build this prison, there's going to be all these jobs for the local community, and then of course you see that that is such a myth, because you know they're uh, forcing the detained immigrant population to basically do the work, uh, right, um, and then um, you know in return. Um, you know, what, what, um, what the immigrants receive obviously is pain, uh, is pain, you know, emotional damage um, and, you know, grave harm um, to their physical health as well, as we have discussed. And also it's a lose-lose game for the employees as well, um, who have also been affected by lack of protection for COVID. So, you know, as a first step, we need to get these private prison corporations out of the mass incarceration system um, and of course, you know, for us, Project South, we're an abolitionist organization, so we don't believe in mass incarceration at all. But I think, you know, as a first step, we need to get these private prison corporations out.
0: And I just, um, you know, because especially with a lot of these immigrant and migrant issues, I mean, it seems like at this point in history and just kind of how discourse is um evolving. I mean, you would almost call these people who are in these detention centers political prisoners. And at that rate, it kind of makes me wonder at what, what um, why should uh, private corporations have any hand in, in how these people are dealt with? Um, but I, I kind of want to ask, I mean, what is the alternative to detention centers through the abolitionist view?
1: Um, the alternative is not to have prisons,
0: (laughs) (laughs) but like, what does that that look like? You know, I, yeah, I'm just, I I understand, (laughs) but kind of, how does that look like just within the dialogue of what's happening? Like, what's the, what's the alternative to, um, yeah. Putting people in prison, basically.
1: No, I mean, it's part of a larger conversation in terms of, you know, what does abolition look like? And I think, you know, if you take the money that, um, you know, The system is currently investing in prisons and immigration detention centers and jails and investing them in social services and protection for asylum seekers, um, you would have such a different, um, you know, a different system. Um, You know, I mean, one potential model, um, you know, when I was in law school at the University of Michigan in Ann Arbor, um, there um, was an organization called Freedom House based in Detroit. Um, and so it was a house basically. And so um, immigrants um, and you know, basically asylum seekers um, were at the house, you know, the whole family was together. Uh, people would visit, um, you know, cook together, play together. And so it you know, such a, and there was a lawyer on a staff at the house um, in terms of um, supporting the asylum seekers with their applications. So, you know, you look at that, such a different model from what we have currently, which the norm is these prisons and family separation and pain and suffering inflicted on immigrants um, because of the profit making motive for the private prison corporations. Um, So I think, you know, once you take the profit motive out of it and you get um, the framing of imprisonment and punishment out of it, The possibilities for what could be instead are really boundless.
2: And I'll just add, right? keep in mind that the immigrant prison population is asylum seekers, it is legal permanent residents who may have um, had interactions with the criminal justice system that are now resulting in their detention, uh, but they have families. Right, many, many, many of the people who are stuck in jail are people who have families that would very much love for them to be living with them. Um, and they could be living with their families, they could be working, they could be pursuing their claims for relief with their lawyers in a setting that is much more conducive to them actually being able to prepare for their hearings and being in jail. Uh, and so I think that when, when we ask the question, what's the alternative to, to detention for immigrants, I think the first question is, why is, why is detention necessary in the first place? Uh, and so this administration has said people abscond, people don't show up for their hearings, um, and that's why we have to keep them in jail because they're not going to show up for their hearings. Um, but the biggest indicator for whether people are going to show up for their hearings is whether or not they have a lawyer um, and know that they're supposed to show up for their hearings. Um, And so if we, if we spent the resources and spent the time thinking about how can we make legal services accessible to immigrants who are in removal proceedings uh, and, and that therefore is the sole basis for detaining them, then we should think about, what can we do to facilitate their participation in removal proceedings that doesn't involve throwing them in jail, which makes it, again, as I noted, much harder.
0: Sarah, what kind of work has the Transnational Legal Clinic been doing to help the migrants and immigrants detained in these conditions?
2: So um, the Transnational Legal Clinic at the law school, we, the students, engage in the direct representation of individuals in immigration proceedings, and then we engage in a wide range of international human rights advocacy um, before international human rights mechanisms, um, the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, the various UN human rights mechanisms, as well as through the filings of amicus briefs um, in federal court. Uh, And so in in specific to to Irwin and its neighboring detention center, uh, the Stewart Detention Center, also in Georgia, we've been working with Project South um, since since early 2018, late 2017, to raise the issues um, that they highlighted with the Penn State Immigration Clinic, Immigrant Rights Clinic, um, in its in their report about the detention conditions at Irwin and Stewart. So we filed a communication uh, in 2018 with uh, the, a variety of UN Special Procedures who had jurisdiction over issues of detention of migrants, women, and children. Um, Also, as as you mentioned, right, human rights defenders, recognizing that when migrants stand up for their rights and try to defend their human rights, they are often retaliated against. Uh, And so we filed a communication uh, and the the UN special procedures responded. Um, They sent a a formal communication asking for follow-up information and an investigation from the State Department, from the federal government, as well as from the two private corporations, uh, and no responses in those communications have ever been filed. Um, We've been working with Project South to raise these issues at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights as well, uh, and continuing now, um, in light of the most recent allegations, are preparing another communication that will go to the UN Special Procedures, and have also been in communication um with staff at the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights about the the current situation to try to bring some outside international independent uh authority to these conversations recognizing that the federal government has completely failed uh recognizing that while certain members of congress have taken an interest and have conducted um site visits Congress has failed to act to take action, and so it is calling upon uh, the international human rights mechanisms to recognize the rights violations that are occurring in the hopes that we can move forward to a more uh, humane and sane process for how we regulate migration. We also represent individuals who are in detention um, and uh, preparing bond applications for individuals. Um, and trying to make sure that people who are in detention get the representation uh, that they deserve.
0: And Azadeh, how about yourself? Would you like to talk a little bit more in depth about Project South's work?
1: Well, um, so we uh, engage in human rights documentation, publishing of reports, um, legislative advocacy, impact litigation, organizing, um, training of lawyers, and... um, you know, other work uh, with the aim of, um, again, shutting these places down, you know, at Project South, um, we are not interested in making these places prettier. Um, And so far, uh, we have had success in terms of convincing the mayor of Atlanta um, to end the city's collusion with, um, um, with the uh, with ICE, um, because the city of Atlanta held itself out as being a progressive and welcoming place for immigrants at the same time as um, making millions of dollars of money off of the detention of immigrants. So after a multi-year campaign and a documentation project that led to a, a substantive report and organizing, we were able to make that happen. Um, and so we believe that is you know, through um, long-term organizing um, as well as other methods and making use of uh, the international human rights framework to really expose the violations um, at these facilities by um, the US government and the private prison corporations. And that is one a strategy that we have been employing along with the Penlaw Transnational Legal Clinic. Um, you know, we believe that um, we can win, and and we can ultimately um, shut these places down and and free the people in prison at these facilities.
0: Great. And um, do you both want to kind of discuss about how your partnership's going and kind of um, what it's been like working with one another, if you don't mind?
2: Uh, well, I can say from from our perspective. Um, in the Transnational Legal Clinic, we look for opportunities for students to engage on behalf, directly on behalf of clients and directly with and, and in partnership with um, organizations that are engaged in, in the actual work. So we're, we are sort of mindful that we are not on the ground in Georgia. Um, we are not driving the agenda, um, but we are there to provide the support that we can provide um, recognizing the capacity issues that the organizations that are doing the day-to-day work um, is strained in many directions. Uh, if You sort of hear all of the things that, that Project South is engaged in and the number of demands on, on their time um, and energies in light of the range of violations uh, that are occurring. Um, our, our hope is that we can provide sort of a, a limited frame of expertise in cases like this around the International Human Rights Advocacy and the International Human Rights Law. Uh, and so I think it's been extremely rewarding for the students to be able to participate. Um, they read the reports, they read about the rights violations, they read about family separation. Uh, and so for them to be able to have a hand working uh, in partnership with an organization um, that is directly engaged in this work and, and try to advance uh international human rights law and international human rights principles in some small way, I think is extremely uh, beneficial and rewarding for the students. Um, and from a teaching perspective, gives them an opportunity to try out, test and perfect a set of skills, a set of advocacy skills um, that, are, that are unique to the setting, right? That are different from the advocacy skills that they're using in their individual client representations. Um, and get, giving them a chance to think more systemically. Um, and so it's been, it's been all together from a pedagogical perspective, um, from an advocacy perspective, and I think from a personal perspective, uh, a very rewarding and at the same time, incredibly frustrating and depressing <laughs> engagement in that again, right, 2018, we're now 2020 and, and we're having the same conversations and we're having the same conversations um, except amplified, right? It seems like the rights violations seem to get more egregious, not less egregious. And so, uh, you know, there, there's a, a degree of frustration that, that comes with that, but I think nonetheless, it, it does, uh, it, there is a benefit to, to our students and to us for engaging in it.
1: Yeah, and um, you know, from our perspective, it's been a really, really great partnership um, with you know, Sarah's clinic, and it's just been such a great pleasure to work with Sarah herself and, um, and her students. Um, you know, we believe strongly in the principle of movement lawyering and um, to the extent that um, you know, working with us as a community-based um, organization and as a movement-building organization, Um, has been, um, you know, useful to the students um, to learn, you know, what what that term means and what working with grassroots um, communities mean. Um, Hopefully that has been fruitful to the students as well. And, you know, I think um, Sarah's clinic is um, truly a powerful opportunity for the students to learn um, what this work looks like. Um, I mean, just the challenges that we have faced um, uh, you know, just in the past six weeks when, um, you know, we first filed the complaint um, and then um, also how, uh, you know, the story has, um, has evolved um, um, and all the developments and all the, you know, progress too that, that we've been able to uh, accomplish in the past six weeks, um, you know, in terms of members of Congress coming to urban Meeting with the women directly, and then when they left the facility, calling for the shutting down of this place. Uh, in terms of the, you know, UN High Commissioner and the Inter American Commissioner, uh, Inter American Commission uh, actively approaching us um, for us to be able to participate in those meetings and to brief um, the members about the violations. Um, you know, I'm really grateful to have um, been, you know, working with Sarah. Um, and the students uh, throughout, you know, this whole process. And and I'm hoping that um, this has been a good um, learning opportunity for the students as well. And we look forward to staying in touch with them past their graduation also.
0: With Associate Justice Amy Coney Barrett being sworn in, um, who is, you know, pro-life, probably not the best of friends to women's reproductive rights, um, while still though you know holding on to that idea of um, protecting the sanctity of life and looking through it at the lens of the four sterilizations that have happened uh, in Georgia, um, what are the potential outcomes with her confirmation and this issue? because um, you said it's a complete failure from top to bottom in government. And I'm wondering if either of you have any insights into how this could change the conversation.
2: It will be interesting to see. Uh, And it harkens back to for me um, to uh, the early 1990s when the golden venture ship from China drowned off the coast of of Queens and, and we were confronted with a large number of people from China seeking asylum. And raising issues of the one-child policy uh, in China, and it was a you know a, a strange alliance of allies who came together to recognize that there should be relief granted to asylum seekers based on the one-child policy. Uh, and so I think um, it has been interesting to see, as they mentioned, right, we've seen a lot of progress in the past six weeks on the attention that the Irwin facility has gotten all the way from right from members of Congress to the to the UN, the Office of the High Commissioner of the UN um, to the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights, right? Folks have really, the the media has really followed this. Um, there is something about this report. And I'll I'll just point out that that the report that was filed um, that Project South was involved in it was page 18 of a 27-page report that the forced sterilizations was mentioned. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there, there are a lot of issues going on in these detention centers, and, and much of it, of the report, and Azadeh can speak more to this than I can, but much of the report was focused on on the violations and the health risks associated with COVID. Um, but there is something about forced sterilizations that really seem to capture the attention um, as a different degree of rights violations. Uh, and so, you know, for those who are pro-life, is this an opportunity for them to recognize that um, that the rights of immigrant women are the same as the rights of others? And uh, and where does this fit in terms of the battles on qualified immunity and who is excluded from prosecution and who is not excluded from prosecution, who is excluded excluded from civil liability for acting under the color of law, right? So it will there will be a there are, are conflicting ideologies that will be presented in, in any litigation that makes its way up to the Supreme Court. Um, and you know, one would hope that that. Certain principles will st- will um, hold true, but uh, I think we we won't know until we see what happens.
0: Since members of the House, uh, Rashida Tlaib, AOC, Ilhan Omar, and Ayanna Presley fought a letter with the United Nations, and Nancy Pelosi called for an investigation. Are you hopeful that these calls to actions will help shut down ICE detention centers? Or are you, you know, broadly optimistic for the future of where this dialogue is going?
1: Yeah, I hope so. I mean, that was a pretty significant move by a congressional um, you know, delegation, a number of uh, members of Congress to send a letter to the UN asking them to investigate a branch of the US government. Um, you know, I mean, to my knowledge, it may have been the first time in recent history. Um, Sarah, correct me if I'm wrong. No, I don't know of any other examples. Yeah, I mean, it's so it's, it's pretty significant. And so I think, um, we're at a different place than we're, than, um, um, than even maybe, you know, three months ago, um, in terms of members of Congress, um, I'm now uh, strongly um, issuing the strong calls to shut this place down. Um, um, And I think none of this would have been possible if there was not public outrage about the violations documented um, in this complaint. Um, And so, um, yeah, I mean, we're we're hoping that um, at least in the short term, we can um, see this place shut down and hopefully that would um, you followed with other facilities um, with um, horrible records also being shut down around the country. Yeah,
2: I think one of the, the, the real advantages here is we've gotten a degree of attention now and, and with the communication to the UN, the UN will follow up. And I think what that gives us is some sustained uh, opportunity for uh, sustained investigations and sustained calls for action. Um, I think you know. I I think back to the public outcry around family separation, um, and and the Trump administration formally calling for an end to family separation, and yet much of of what underlies family separation persists, and and there are families that are still separated, and so it does demonstrate. Um, we really are at a, at a tipping point, I think, in the advocacy here around conditions of detention and what is done, uh, particularly to women, but to all immigrants who are who are put in jail. Um, and so it is it is sort of incumbent, I think, upon all of us to stay on top of it, to pay attention, and to make sure that this doesn't fade away into the history books as, a, as, as without sort of real, meaningful action.
0: But I just want to ask before we finish up, is there anything that I'm missing? Um, is there anything that you think is important to talk about while we have this platform right now?
1: Assuming that law students are going to be listening to this, um, I would just like to encourage law students to get involved with people's movements. I mean, look at what's happening um, around urban, right? Right. Um, you know, we cannot be relying on courts um, solely for our liberation, you know, we have to be organizing. Um, And so just an example of that is, um, there were lawsuits brought to try to free people from Irvin in the spring and because of how, um, you know, bad um, the the courts are and, you know, the case law is um, in the 11th Circuit, um, though, you know, the litigation unfortunately was not successful And so, you know, people were not freed um, from Irving. And so, you know, if you were thinking traditionally as a lawyer, you would have said, okay, well, I tried and that litigation failed. And so sorry, I did everything that I could. Right. But, you know, as a movement lawyer, you need to be, first of all, thinking outside of the box. And second of all, realize that the power really lies with the people, truly, and with the people's movement. Um, and so you know, being involved in this movement to shut down Irving and you know, the documentation that has happened and you know, the working with the human rights framework um, and the organizing for a number of years, um, you know, then being able to put this complaint out, um, which led to this public outrage, which in turn you know, generated and really forced members of Congress because remember politicians don't do anything out of their own uh, goodwill, right? They're forced um, to take action. Um, and so finally, they're being moved um, to do something around this facility and hopefully, you know, enough momentum will be generated so that we can shut this place down. Um, so again, I would like to encourage a lot of students who are hearing this to, um, you know, as you're kind of moving on to your careers, to look at as the as law as one tool and to always um, use your legal skills Um, in the service of the movement and and realize that, um, you know, it is through long-term organizing that um, actual long-term and long-lasting change actually happens.
0: Great. And then before I let you both go quickly, one thing that you're optimistic about in 2021?
2: The next generation is engaged. Uh, The next generation from the high school students that I have the privilege of interacting with in some of the summer programs to the law students that I am immensely privileged to to supervise and teach and work with um, at the law school and particularly in the clinic are engaged, um, are paying attention in ways that um, I have not seen before. Uh, and are are critic are engaged in, in in sort of the deep critical thinking that is necessary to achieve positive change. And I think that level of of engagement um, and the and the questions that are being asked by our students and, and by the next generation uh, and the commitment that they are demonstrating to to sort of to justice is that is different from um, what I've seen in in years past and that ultimately is what gives me the greatest hope.
1: Yeah, I definitely agree with Sarah. I mean, during the summer we saw how many young people came out to protest and to really raise their voices in opposition to injustice and to organize and so I do also have a lot of um, faith um, in the young people and also in the wisdom of the elders
0: great well thank you very much for both your time this evening or for your time this evening i uh, hope you both have uh, great nights and stay safe out there in the internet on the internet